Hey, and welcome to Not So Linear, a podcast that's here to help normalize conversation around grief and help you feel less alone in your own journey. I'm your host, Tamsin, and each week I'll be interviewing some amazingly strong people who share their own stories on how they've navigated life after loss. But don't worry, we'll talk plenty about finding happiness, what inspires us and helps us to grow. And whilst none of our journeys are so linear, what we do know is that it's better to get through it together. In this week's episode, I talk with Rachel, who some of you may recognise from the blog and social media community, An Unexpected Family Outing, which is a place for her to share her experience with losing her daughter, Dorothy. At 28 weeks, Rachel was diagnosed with severe preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. She was left fighting for her life whilst delivering Dorothy, who at this point had already passed away. Prior to Dorothy, Rachel had also experienced two miscarriages, so becoming a mother had been something she desperately awaited. She didn't realise how hard her journey was going to be, and when she fell pregnant with her daughter Frances, it was a pregnancy riddled with fear and anxiety. On the day we recorded this episode, Frances had actually turned four, and Rachel tells me how they talk about Dorothy. She loves her sister very much, and I think it's amazing how, as a family, they've been so open with each other. And Frances even goes and talks to her kindergarten friends and teacher all about her, which I just think is incredible. It is an emotional episode, yet very educational. And since recording, this topic has been in the media, as we saw Jacinda put in place legislation for women who experience early pregnancy loss and stillbirth within New Zealand. But it was also interesting to learn of the other countries that have put this in place too, such as the Philippines. I really hope you find this episode as endearing as I did and I dedicate it to Dorothy, who as Francis describes, lives amongst the stars. And please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review and you'll also find more content on my Instagram page and I've put details of Rachel's social media in the show notes too. Hey Rachel, so thank you so much for joining the podcast and I really appreciate the um, commitment to the time zone difference. I know you're over in Vermont right now. Yeah, it was a little challenging for us to figure out how far, how many hours apart we are, what day we're each on. Yeah, um, so this was pretty educational for me. I will now always know that Sydney is 15 hours ahead of me and often in the next day. I know that's the thing that's hard I have to remember it's not just the same day it's also the the day ahead maybe you could give our listeners a bit of an intro into who you are what you do a bit about Vermont as well that's quite a cool place I've never visited before yeah so I live in Vermont in the United States and I I don't know I hold a lot of different roles in my life Um, my number one role is I'm a mother I'm a mother to two daughters, Dorothy, who was still born in 2016, and then her sister, Frances, who was born in 2017. And actually, today, the day we're talking, is Frances's birthday. She's four years old. Um, and I'm also a kindergarten teacher. That's like my day job. And then my evening weekend job that I've given myself is I write and talk and share. Uh, about my experiences with grief and miscarriage and stillbirth and try to be a voice for others who maybe are having a hard time finding their voice at wherever they are in their grief. And I just try to be an advocate for 
what we refer to as like the lost community, um, lost moms, lost dads, bereaved parents. So uh, it's kind of a little bit of what I do. And uh, yeah. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for sharing that. I know how much of an impact you're already having on so many people by being so open about your story and your experience. So maybe you could start off by telling us a bit more about the blog and what was it that kind of made you think you wanted to go out there and share your experience with other people? So I actually started the blog not for the purpose that it's it's serving now. Um, I started the blog because when I was found out I was pregnant with Francis, and a little bit before that, I felt like I needed a place to share with family and friends what was going on in our pregnancy after loss without having to answer. Like I, it was, it was felt very daunting to me to keep entering into the same conversations over and over. And I kind of wanted a place where people could go to get the answers to their questions or the things they were wondering. And so I just started it as a way to communicate with family and friends. And then pretty quickly, I realized other people were reading it and were relating to what I was writing and telling me that it was resonating with them. And so I started writing for a broader audience that was actually more for other lost parents. And um, over the years, I've kind of ebbed and flowed with it. But over the last few months, I've really recommitted to to that kind of advocacy lens with it, like really just wanting to be a voice for people, like I said, who are having a hard time finding their voice. I I think I'm five years out from the death of Dorothy. And I think I'm at a place right now where I have enough space to have perspective on some of those raw, like more vulnerable moments of grief. And I feel like because I have a little space from them, I can write about them for people who are new to that, to their loss and who are really, you know, just deep in it and wondering, you know, am I alone in this? So that's really, you know, what it's become. It's not what it started out as, but um, I kind of just let, I find people resonate most with my writing when I, when I'm just authentic, when I, I really just everything I write is based on my experience and and I try to be inclusive in the community that I connect with. Um, I can't write for everybody because I can only write about what I know, but in, you know, like on Instagram and on Facebook, I really try to pull in other resources and be, I don't know, kind of a bridge. Like if you've had a different loss or a different experience with grief, I like to think that I can maybe help connect you with someone who can be a voice for you. Yeah, I think what you do is fantastic and you're there to help people who feel so alone in their journey. What I also found quite interesting was, as you know, I did a recent episode on miscarriage with Dr. Jessica Zucker. And we talk about how as a society, many women feel alienated because we don't talk about our pregnancy at those early weeks where miscarriage is more prone to happen. And you write in your blog that this actually happened to you too. You went through a miscarriage and then the following day when you were meant to go to work and attend a really important meeting, you didn't want to go and therefore called in sick but didn't really feel like you could tell them the truth about what had happened because it was such an unspoken thing back then and to be honest still even is today. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that experience as well. Yeah, so that was, um, I wrote about that in relation to my first miscarriage, which happened, the whole experience happened very quickly. Um, 
I, you know, had a positive pregnancy test on a Friday night. And by um, the Monday morning after, uh, I was already cramping and bleeding and, you know, very quickly found out that I I was miscarrying. I And so it was at about five or six weeks. So kind of on the border of being what's deemed a chemical pregnancy or was possibly like an early miscarriage. And, and either way, it was, you know, obviously a new experience for me. And I just felt so alone because I knew my own mother had had a miscarriage. And but besides her, I'd never heard anybody like talk about it unless it was like on a television show or maybe like in a book or something. And so I didn't really know how you were supposed to, like, were you supposed to tell people? And so I called in sick to work because I, I was in a lot of pain and I didn't want to be, you know, like I said, I'm a kindergarten teacher. Like I didn't want to be in an elementary school going through this, you know, I don't know. And I mean, no one wants to be anywhere going through this, but that just felt like a really inopportune place. And when I wrote the email, I just said that I was out sick and it happened to be the day of a really important meeting with a family. And when I finally did return to work, it it was, I didn't even go back the next day. I think I waited like two days. And when I finally did go back, I got a little bit of pushback from you know, a coworker and also the parent of that, of the, you know, who was involved in the meeting, wondering how I could have missed such an important meeting, why I couldn't have been there, you know. And I felt so stuck because I felt like maybe if they knew what I had experienced, they'd be more sympathetic. But then, but I, but I wasn't sure, you know, because I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be this upset and this distraught. And so I just, kind of, I just kept quiet about it and I kept quiet about it for a while. And actually it was uh, Jessica Zucker, Dr. Jess, who you're talking about, who was the first like person that I saw talk about like early miscarriage and talk about the grief that goes with that. And that's when, I mean, this was like months later when I was finally able to just say to people like, this happened to me and this was awful and terrible and traumatic. And and I shared that just with like my friends and family on, on my own like personal social media. And I was so overwhelmed with like all the people who reached out to me to be like, oh, me too. Yep, me too. Yes, I at you know, I mean, people were like writing cards to me at work and sticking them in my like mailbox to tell me like, I'm so glad you talked about this. And that's when I think I really started to realize like, you know, it would be some time before I started writing about my own experiences. But it was my first experience with like, oh, sharing your story welcomes other people in. Yeah, exactly. And I think as a society, this is what we need to change now, isn't it? Making sure that women know that this isn't something we need to be ashamed of. We're, it's not our fault. It's not something that we ever caused. It's something that is actually just nature and science. Yeah. And then after that miscarriage, was it that you had a second one as well? Yeah. So I had a second miscarriage. So that first miscarriage was in February of 2015. And then July of uh, early, like late June, early July of 2015, we found out we were pregnant again. And that time we actually were able to like hear a heart, you know, we went in for an ultrasound and heard a heartbeat and we felt like this was really maybe going to happen. Not knowing a lot at that point and not having had many conversations with people about miscarriage, I, I kind of naively thought like I'd had my one. And so this pregnancy would be the one that stuck. I mean, I've learned very 
the very hard way that that is not how this works at all for people and for some people. And so we heard the heartbeat. We were very excited. And then I woke up one morning and I, you know, went to the bathroom and saw blood. And I just literally, it felt like the walls caved in. I knew exactly what was happening. And I spent called a friend to drive me to the doctor um, because my husband wasn't available and she waited with me and I will never ever you know be able to repay her for that kindness she was so supportive in that moment like she never made me feel like I was overreacting she just like held my hand and, and brought me there and and so they really were quite dismissive because I was so early and, and it was the same doctor's office that I had um, were dealt with with my first miscarriage. And they'd been very, very dismissive of my early of my earlier miscarriage as well because of how early it was. It made me feel like I was losing my mind because I went in to talk to these doctors and just find some kind of support or something like I, I logically understood that if this was happening, there was nothing we were going to do to stop it. But I wanted to know what what should I be doing? Like, what can I be doing to help myself right now? Because I feel out of touch and out of control. And I just felt very dismissed. Like, this happens. You just have to, like, let it happen. You just need to go home. You need to not think about it. And I kind of didn't follow the directions and kept calling and kept reaching out and being like, I'm still bleeding. Is this too much bleeding? Because, you know, I was actually worried. Like, I, I don't know how much you're supposed to bleed, right? Like, I'm thinking you have a finite amount of blood in your body. Like, how much of this is supposed to leave you? And <laughs> they really seemed to think that that was an important question. Like, I think I got, and I, I do definitely have health anxiety. Like, I know that about myself now, but don't think that's a reason to dismiss somebody. I feel like that they should have, I feel like I could have had, had a much different experience, not necessarily better, but just different if somebody had said to me, this is what's happening it's really terrible and we're so sorry. And this is what we want you to do to take care of yourself. And I had none of that. And mm -hmm. so I, you know, I spent two days bleeding a lot and cramping and just feeling like I was in agony, but also I had these doctors telling me like, it, I'm sure everything's going to be fine. People bleed in pregnancy. You just need to relax. Right. And I woke up one morning, we were getting ready to drive up to Maine here in the U.S. and I was driving or we were driving along. We stopped at uh, New Hampshire, which is the state in between Vermont and Maine. And we stopped at a rest stop. And I had woke up that morning, like not really bleeding or anything and um, feeling like, okay, like I didn't have any cramping. And I went into the bathroom and I passed the baby in the gas station bathroom. And it just happened so suddenly, like I felt this kind of just sensation and I instinctively like reached my hands down and caught and you know caught the baby and was just like could not believe this was happening to me like here right like yeah. it was hard enough miscarrying in my home but I'm in a gas station bathroom and yeah. I like wrapped you know the baby up and went to the door and like signaled for my husband. And he was like, what, what do you want? Like, what are you doing? And I called him back and showed him, you know, you know, showed him the baby. And I was like, I, I think that this is 
you know, the baby, like, I, what do we do? And he's like, I, I, he was totally at a loss and just, it was like as supportive as he could be, but like neither of us had the answer. And, and that's one of the other things that I try to talk a lot about is the fact that, you know, I, I've flushed and that's something in the miscarriage community that even though we can talk about miscarriages, that's like one of the uglier details of it, right? Is like, what do you do when you miscarry? And one of the things that people do is flush and it's really feels really horrific, but um, it's one of those things that I want to normalize as part of the experience. It doesn't make you a bad person. You're just in a really crappy situation, making the worst best choice in a moment and and whatever it is you've done in that moment you you did you did what was yeah how many weeks pregnant were you at this point um I was about nine weeks pregnant so far enough along to know you know what I was looking at but also you know not as far as you know honestly reading some some experiences of other, you know, some other women's experiences later of later miscarriages, like in their home. I mean, a miscarriage can be very much like giving birth, you know, Mm. laboring. And, and so I think that is something that isn't understood unless it's happened to you. To me, this highlights that there is a complete lack in the like kind of doctor world of when women come in to say that they're pregnant, that, that you're only educated about the pregnancy happy path, like it going well yeah. and the birth. And are you not educated at all about all the things that maybe could go wrong and what you do in those scenarios? Yeah. And honestly, I've learned more from like the Instagram community about what to do when you know you're going to miscarry than I learned from any doctor or health professional. And I think that's something, you know, that we've had to do for ourselves as lost parents and and survivors of miscarriage and stillbirth and whatnot is we've had to, we've had to create those resources for each other because they're not Mm -hmm. being created for us. More doctors, more health professionals are, are doing that work or are sharing that work, but that work is often being brought to them that someone else done and saying like, this is a need and you need to fulfill this need for your patients. And I don't know how many doctors and health professionals and, you know, midwives and nurses are, are doing that on their own. I'm not saying they're not out there, but um, with my experience with earlier miscarriages, I encountered none. And I know I'm not alone in that. It sounds like a really traumatic experience that you went through. So thank you for sharing that with me and being so open. I think, you know, what you're doing right now is helping so many women because for me, for example, I've never been pregnant before. I would never have known that these things can happen and how to deal with them, especially if the doctors are not educating us in this area. So for you going through those two experiences, what was it then like being pregnant with Dorothy? Yeah, so we got pregnant or I got pregnant with Dorothy really quickly after my second miscarriage. I found out I was pregnant that August, so it was like weeks later. Um and I was actually surprised at how quickly we could conceive again. So that's like another conversation that was never really had with me was like you can miscarry that's one great. month and turn around and like the next month be pregnant and that was really a little bit jarring because I wasn't sure that I was ready yet. But obviously, I really wanted 
a living baby and I really wanted this to, you know, I wanted to have that experience. So I spent a lot of time waiting for her pregnant, my pregnancy with her to end because I just didn't have faith that it was going to, you know, I, I was going to make it much further. Like I kind of was seeing myself as like some kind of like distance runner, right? Like I'm going to make it this far. And now next time I'm going to make it this far. And I kind of in my head was like, so I'll probably, I made it like six weeks. I made it nine weeks. So I'll probably miscarry like around like 12 or 13 weeks this time. Like that's kind of the strange brain you're in when you've been through loss. Brain anxiety inducing, isn't it? Yeah. I just, I was waiting. And like every time I went to the bathroom, I was checking for blood and, you know, and I did have a um, subchronic hematoma with her when I was pregnant with her, which is basically just like a blood clot in in your uterus. And they're pretty, they're not, I wouldn't say they're common, but they do happen and they can often be nothing. And But if the clot like bursts, it's a bunch of blood. And I had one of those at about 14, 15 weeks mm-hmm. with her. And was like, okay, here it is. Like, this is happening. I can't believe this is happening again. You thought Luckily, you were miscarrying again. Yeah, I thought I was miscarrying again. I, I could not be convinced otherwise. And, you know, luckily at that point, I had switched my care over at that point to um, a hospital that had like a, a really, a really like highly recommended midwifery program. And I felt like maybe, you know, with midwives, I would have a little bit more of the support I was looking for, like kind of the whole patient experience. And they were really great about taking me in and doing an ultrasound and talking to me about what it was. And I just feel like they went, they took the extra time to talk things out with me and let me voice my fears and then like tell me like, okay, these are the things we don't want you worrying about. And these are the things that like, yeah, it makes sense that you're worrying about this. And this is what we want you to think about and, you know, like to help you. And so I started to kind of get into a place where I was like, maybe thinking this was going to happen. We made it to the 20 week like anatomy scan and found out that, you know, we were having a a girl and that was very exciting. And well, I mean, it was all very exciting. (laughs) Girl or boy would have been very exciting. But, and then I went in for my 28 week appointment and was really kind of starting to feel confident like this was going to happen. Like I was, you know, heading like about I was in my third trimester. And, and at that appointment, they found that my blood pressure was really high and elevated. And then over the next few days, that elevated blood pressure turned into preeclampsia, um, which is a uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, it's like a disease of the placenta, which high blood pressure is often associated with it, but there's there's many other symptoms as well. And so I was sick with preeclampsia. I was admitted to the hospital for bed rest um, because at this point, Dorothy was like 29 weeks. And so it was a little too early to take action if we didn't need to. And unfortunately, while I was there in the hospital, because we were kind of just waiting to see what would happen and how my body would respond to everything. Um, she passed away because of a, I had a placental abruption, which is basically when the placenta pulls away from the uterine wall. And it's a really traumatic experience for the baby. Um, I was told she, she died, if not instantly, like pretty quickly. There wasn't really anything they would have been able to do. But I mean, I was in a hospital when she died. I 
I went to bed at eight o'clock after hearing her heartbeat and I woke up at one thirty in the morning and she was, she was dead. And it's just really, it's still really surreal to me that that can happen while you're sleeping, right? Like yeah. that your body I can ignore. I didn't know. I mean, I, I will tell people, I have told people that I did wake up that night at like, I think it was like 1130 and woke up and felt like a headache. And that's one of the things you're supposed to look out for with preeclampsia is like a a bad headache and vision changes. And there was all these things I was supposed to watch out for. Woke up with a headache, but I kind of was like, it doesn't feel like a bad one. Like, I'm just going to try to go back to sleep. And I remember thinking to myself, like, something felt off, but I kind of thought like, I'll just, I'll talk to the doctor in the morning during rounds, you know? Um, and then when they woke me up for vitals, like two hours later, um, so I always kind of wonder like what it was that woke me up, you know? And so, yeah, it, and she, after we found out that she had died, I actually, my, my severe preeclampsia became really like I had a really, um, sudden onset of symptoms and I got really, really sick really quickly. Mm -hmm. And, um, I ended up having my preeclampsia turned into what's called help syndrome. And, um, basically I, it always sounds very melodramatic to say this, but, um, Dorothy, Dorothy died that day and I almost died too. So my husband, sat alongside me as, you know, I was in labor and delivery and they rushed me. I crashed and they rushed me down to the ICU. And I actually delivered Dorothy in the ICU, hooked up to machines and oxygen and and just fighting for my own life. Delivering the placenta is not the cure, but it's like the start of things getting better um, because postpartum preeclampsia is a thing as well. But so there was no hope for me without delivering for delivering her. And at that point, because I'd had a placental abruption and had, was bleeding out, I couldn't have a C-section because I had mm-hmm. no clotting agents left in my blood. So I had no choice really, but to deliver her vaginally, because if they did a C-section, they couldn't guarantee that I'd survive it. And to this day, just I cannot explain to you where the strength came from to deliver her in that environment, um, knowing what I knew, like knowing that she wasn't going to be alive. Like, I mean, it's just, it is a really incredibly traumatic experience to go through the vulnerability of birth and knowing what the outcome is, that, that the outcome is death. Like it's a really traumatic experience. And, and so I, I feel like in the last few, in like the last year or so, I've really started to unpack a lot of that with my, with my readers and and my community, the the birth trauma that goes along with um, having a stillbirth. Especially as you were so ill yourself as well. Like, I don't know how you got the energy to get yourself through those days. Yeah. for your partner as well, it must have been really difficult. Yeah. I mean, he, he, I feel like I'm going to cry talking about this part, feels so much for him and for all partners who have to sit by. I mean, even, even if their situation, like their partners, like, I mean, Mike was sitting there watching, that's my husband was sitting there watching me potentially dying and 
watching doctor after doctor and nurse after nurse come in and, you know, doing this and doing that and just chaos around him. And meanwhile, like, you know, he knows his, his baby is dead. His wife is not well. Like, is he going to walk out of this hospital completely alone? And so I think I, I am very grateful to the nurses who were around us at that point and actually the doctors that we had. That we ended up getting transferred to another hospital at that point because of the care I needed. And they were so fantastic about like folding him in and and really letting him, you know, really acknowledging him. You know, they couldn't they couldn't necessarily care for him because I needed to be the focus, but I feel like he was seen there. And I think that was really important to him. Because also the partner, especially Mike, they are going through the same thing in a way, even though they're not going through the physical pain. He's there from the outside seeing not only yeah. the loss of Dorothy, but also you as well, like you slipping away. So, gosh, I, he has a lot and of And knowing there's nothing he can do, right? Like he is zero. Like I had no control over the situation, but like I there was almost something I could do, right? Like I was able to participate in like giving birth, right? But he literally just had to sit there and watch. And I think that's a really, that's a really terrifying feeling to have. It's just that helplessness. And and it's something that I don't think partners get the recognition and the support that they always need, especially afterwards, right? Because, you know, a lot of people would reach out to me and tell me how sorry they were about what had happened. But I I don't, Mike didn't get as much of that, you know, because he, he was the dad, you know, whereas like people felt like her death happened to me, but it happened to him as well. Just because I was the one carrying her, it didn't make him any less like he he still had the right to grieve that in in his own way. And so I think, especially I think for men, it's hard because they're, they're supposed to be solid and strong. And, and I, I just want everyone to know you are entitled to like your vulnerability and that doesn't, vulnerability isn't a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of incredible strength to like open yourself up and, and let others in. And so, but you know, that it takes time to to shift the culture on that how did you find your support levels were like when this happened and you had to return to work at some point what was that like was your work and your friends and your family really supportive or did you feel alienated um for the most part we were really supported both of you know my husband's a teacher as well and both of our schools were really we that was not something we had to worry about like they they allowed us to take our um here in the states um we the leave is not what it should be um but we as school teachers often have better options for for leave and um for like paternity maternity leave and so we actually were able to take our scheduled like the paternity and maternity leave that we were scheduled to take and and part of that was I was still you know when I returned home from the hospital I was still really ill um Mm. I was very weak my blood pressure was kind of all over the place I was on blood thinners like I was not coming home (laughs) I was coming home grieving and I was coming home like not a strong individual like my physical strength was really weak so Mike was originally home to help kind of take care of me but we were able to do that without having to really, I don't know, it wasn't a worry for us. 
which we feel really fortunate about because I, I have heard hundreds of stories in the last, you know, five years of sharing my own story of people mm-hmm. who did not have that same level of support. And, and I know how hard and how alone and how isolated I felt with that level of support. So I can only imagine what it must be like to have less than that, how much lonelier and, mm-hmm. you know, desolate it must seem. So friends were a mixed bag in terms of support. You know, the honestly, the people who showed up and came into our home and sat with us and just were there are the same people who hold a very big role in our life now. And and I'm actually just kind of realizing this as I'm talking to you and thinking back to the people who were sitting on my couch with me as I just like cried and, you know, they just brought me food and watched me eat or not eat, you know, or whatever. Those are the people who are in our tightest, like inner circle now. Um, And there are people who disappeared, literally were supposed to come see us and texted to say, like, I'm not going to come. And then I didn't hear from them again. And what do you think was the reason for that? What do you think? I think for one friend in particular, she was pregnant. And I think I was terrifying, which I can logically understand but I really I really needed her and so for her to walk away and then not reach out to me until after her baby was you know born alive was really hurtful and and I you know since then we've we've been able to be there for each other during big moments in our lives kind of at a distance but it never goes back to being the same like you just you you realize the kind of people you need in your life. And I just, yeah. I, I needed people who, who were willing to that. sit and who were willing to like sit in the ugly with me. Right. Like if I, if you can't be there for me at my worst, like it's really hard to like pull you in when things are going really well. And so I think for that friend and maybe a few others, it was, I, I was their worst nightmare, right? Like they didn't want to happen. Like, not that I was contagious. Maybe I was giving off bad vibes or something. Yeah. And I think yeah. for some people, they just didn't know what to say, mm-hmm. right? Because it's That's like, what I, was gonna say. I honestly, until, you know, it was, it wasn't until after kind of the chaos calmed down and I was lying in the ICU that first night after Dorothy, you know, after I delivered Dorothy and I had sent Mike away that night his parents had come to to see us and be with us and I had sent I basically told them like take Mike out of the hospital like he needs to go somewhere else tonight and like maybe get some kind of sleep or something like he doesn't need to be here so I was all alone in the ICU room and I just remember lying and staring up at the ceiling and just thinking like who do I know that's had a stillbirth who does this happen to and literally like it just this really weird thought just kept popping in my head. And that might've been like, I was on a lot of pain meds and things at the time too, but <laughs> I just kept thinking of this series of books, the little house on the prairie books. And I just kept thinking about like the mom in that book. I'm like, I bet she had a stillbirth. Like, I feel like this only happens to people in like the 1800s. Like this doesn't happen yeah. to people in 2016. And it just was this very weird intrusive thought that like wouldn't really go away. And I think it was just, re- it was the beginning of me realizing like I'd never heard anybody talk about this. Or if I had, 
I just like didn't believe that that was a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And especially for like somebody living in a place where I had access to like great healthcare. Yeah. Like, how does that happen? And so I think, you know, if that's the way I was feeling and it had just happened to me, there is a part of me that can understand how others had no idea how to respond to me. I think what I try to do in the year, I get that, but I am really trying to help people not have that be their excuse. And in the way we can help people not have that be an excuse is by talking about it, right? So if more people talk about it and more people say, oh yes, this happened to my sister or this happened to my cousin or my coworker, now it's not this like taboo topic and we don't have to avoid the person and alienate them. We can understand that what's happened to them. It's like, you know, like if, you know, your grandmother dies, everybody's grandmother dies. And we can talk about that because we can understand that law. And so I want people to understand that this, you know, a stillbirth happens to one in 160 pregnancies, right? That's not a few people. No. It's, you know, it's four to five million stillbirths happen a year across the world. Like that's, it's a huge number. It's a lot of people being impacted and a lot of people's families being impacted. I think it goes back to what we said before, and I hear this in all of my episodes with people when we talk about grief. We need to learn to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. And of course, Mm -hmm. talking about things like this and taboo topics makes society unsure. They're worried about upsetting people or they're worried about whether they're saying the wrong thing. But actually, a lot of the time, it's better to at least ask and say something and try and understand. Try and put yourself in their shoes and ask them how you can help them rather than escaping like your friend did that's actually going to make us feel 10 times worse yeah and I think yeah it's that sitting in the discomfort and also understanding that the few minutes that you're sitting in that discomfort how that compares to the person who this has impacted right it's uncomfortable for me for 30 minutes right while I sit with you and talk with you or or five minutes as I encounter you in the hallway at work right that's my discomfort. But then I literally, if if I'm not the person directly impacted, I literally get to walk away from that yeah. discomfort. I can remove myself. I can brush it off, shrug it off. I can compartmentalize it. But for the person who that's the, who is directly impacted, you know, who's who's had the loss, whatever kind of loss it is, that they're sitting with that all the time, every day. You're always feeling like you're missing something. And even on the best, happiest, most fulfilling days of your life, even on those days, you know that something's not there, you know, because very often on those days, it's it can be almost a little bit harder because the person you're missing is the person you want to turn to and talk to and say like this, you know, oh my gosh, I'm having the best day and this is amazing. And and you want to share it with them and they're not there. And so it it's so all-encompassing what, you know, this experience of grief. And it means a lot to the person who's grieving when someone is willing to kind of come in to that and share that space with them for a little bit, because it makes you feel like you're not holding it all on your own, right? Like yeah. you are carrying it all the time. But like when someone comes in and sits with you or let you cry or just says like, I, I, even if you come in and say, I don't know what to say to you, 
I, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing that goes so far with me because I get it. Like even I find myself when someone has had, you know, has lost someone, I still find myself like, oh gosh, okay. I've not had this exact loss so what's going to be, you know, like I do find myself kind of tripping over, over it a little bit. And then I just remind myself, like, you just need to say something like, just tell them you love them. If nothing else, just say, I'm sorry. And I love you. And I wish that I could take your hurt away. Such a nice thing or way to look at it, isn't it? It's, it's about being supportive. I'm, I'm really interested to know what you think as a society we can do to help people that have gone through your experience now. What do you think needs to change? I think specifically around pregnancy and infant loss, there needs to be a shift in how we look at pregnancy in general, I think would help us with how we support those who are grieving these losses. Because so much of pregnancy is focused on the baby, right? Which makes sense. That's really important. But when it's not until the baby dies that you realize how little consideration is actually given to the mother and the fam- in, in the family. Because all of a sudden, if, if Dorothy had lived, I would have had like really thorough postpartum care and people would, you know, people would be expecting me to rest and relax because you just had a baby and taking care of yourself. So all of that still happened. Like my body still delivered a baby. It's just that the baby died. But you realize there that's where the support kind of ends. Like if the baby dies, the mother and the family are often left without the support. So I feel like if we start changing the way that we look at just care for pregnant people in general, about being more about the person and the baby together, I think that could go a long way in how we respond to a person if their pregnancy ends or the baby dies. Because we won't look at it as like, oh, pregnancy over, consideration of person over. It's like it's the whole person. Mm-hmm. I think that is something like a big shift, right, that I would love to see change and I think would impact us in so many mm-hmm. ways, right? Um, you know, it would impact us in terms of, it, I feel like it could solve so many problems if we looked at the person as a whole. But I think for more kind of immediate small steps, it's just, it's just taking a moment to be human. And that's kind of my big thing for medical professionals. I know that pregnancy loss is, it's common, right? 25% of pregnancies, one in four pregnancies ends in a loss of some kind. That's a huge number. But inside of that statistic are people. Like I, I will often say like, I'm one in four, but I'm actually only one. Like when I'm sitting in your doctor's office and I'm bleeding and I'm having an ultrasound with no heartbeat, like that's just me. I'm the only person experiencing that moment, right? Like in that moment for myself. So it's really hard when you get lumped in as a number. So we have to like think again, like about the person and humanize this and not make it a statistics game. And I think that would help us a lot in, in how we support people. It sounds like there is so much still left to do and it kind of makes me wonder how do we make such big changes like this, all these big steps that need to be taken? What what can we do to change it? Yeah, I think 
I mean, what you're doing is huge, right? Like just talking and, and letting someone with a story like mine come on to a, a podcast like yours and, and acknowledging that a stillbirth deserving of grief, right? Like that's a huge step. And another huge step is like, I know it's going to sound strange, but there's a lot to be said for people in positions of like power and influence talking about these things. And you're seeing more and more of that. You know, the, the example that comes to my mind of recently is um, Chrissy Teigen um, talking yeah. about the death of her son, Jack. And the fact that she continues to post things about Jack is so validating for the lost mom community. Like we just applaud her so much because the things she's doing with her kids and the way she's just acknowledging her like everyday grief and, and these missed milestones and things like we see ourselves in that, but she also has a platform that is showing that and normalizing that for so many other people. And so while it's amazing that there's so many of us out here, like regular everyday people sharing our stories, it's, Unfortunately, we also need the support of like some bigger, bigger voices to to bring attention to it. It's the same of like when Michelle Obama released her memoir and talked about her experiences with like IVF and miscarriage. That's huge. It's yeah. huge to see somebody of such stature and prominence and, you know, is say out loud, like this has happened to me and this is how I coped and how I got through it. So even in the last five years of me writing and sharing my story out there, there's been such a shift and the shift keeps, I mean, it's just, it is changing. And it's, this is something, you know, I've only been in this community for like five or six, you know, five years, but I have friends who, you know, their losses were 10 plus years ago talking about how different it is. Mm -hmm. Women coming to my, you know, Facebook page and my Instagram page who are 30, 40, sometimes even 50 years out from their loss and are saying like, oh, I, this is, I finally have a place where I can talk about this. And I think that's so powerful. And it's like, just, it's so incredible to, to show that, you know, there, there's no timeline, right? We all know that there's no timeline on this grief. There's no time stamp on like, at this point, you, you've like lost your opportunity to discuss it. I think it just goes to show you like, when you open up, when you share your stories, when others share their stories, you open up space for people to come in and share theirs. And that's, that's really, I think how we're going to change this. Yeah, I feel like that's happened to me ever since I launched this podcast just about four weeks ago now. So many people, even from my school, who I've not seen for over 10 years, messaged me to say, hey, I, I haven't had anyone to talk to about this. And then send me paragraphs and paragraphs of what happened. And I'm like, this yeah. is amazing. And I've had it multiple times, multiple times a week. And I'm like, if I hadn't shared my story, who would these people have shared theirs with? And it's a catalyst effect, isn't it? The more that me and you Mm -hmm. do things like this, we help one person who then helps another person. One thing also I'd love to ask you about is Francis. So obviously it's Francis' fourth birthday today. And how do you talk to her about Dorothy and your experience? Yeah, so my husband and I went to therapy really quickly after Dorothy's death. Um, and we actually went together. And one of the things that we learned and, and worked on in therapy was about creating our family culture. 
And one of the things that we felt was important to our culture that was maybe missing from our own upbringings was talking about death. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it was something and we're not unique in that. I think many families avoid the subject because it feels sad. And, you know, I was, like I said, I, I'm an anxious person and I always have been. And I think, you know, from like my own parents probably didn't want to worry me about anything, but people with anxiety will always find things to worry about. It's better to just I'm not exactly let their imagination the run away with them. <laughs> like, like if you don't fill in the blank, I will fill in the blank and my version will be much more catastrophic. So you should probably just tell me what's really happening. Um, but kind of knowing that about myself, knowing Mike and I, you know, would talk a lot about when I was pregnant with Francis and we talk about this in therapy and just the two of us on our own, like, how are we, are we going to talk about Dorothy? Like, how is this going? How, what, what role does she play in our family? Like, clearly she's our daughter, but we kind of have a choice right now. Like, do we introduce her as Francis's sister? Like, do we make that? Because you, you do get to kind of decide that, right? Like we could, we, mm-hmm. I could very well have spent my whole life not letting her know that a baby came before her. And that would totally be within my right to do. But I just always imagined, you know, like 20 years down the road, her finding out and being like horrified with me for keeping something like that from her, especially because it impacts me so deeply, right? So one of the things, and I know this from like my experience working with with small children, and like I said, I'm a kindergarten teacher, is I just decided, I think we're just going to follow her lead. I, I don't want to overburden her, but I also don't want to restrict her. And so I started out by, I have a picture of Dorothy. We only have one picture of Dorothy that a nurse took, but it's in, uh, it's a black and white photo. It's on my nightstand. And when Francis was little, all like babies and toddlers get in the stage where they love to look at other babies. And so she would see the baby on my nightstand and she would talk about the baby. And so I just would say, this is, you know, this is Dorothy. She's your sister, you know, and she barely won, like not really saying anything, but I just was like, I'm just going to say this and say it out loud and just kind of see where it goes. And over time, just saying like, this is Dorothy, she's your sister opened up. I think it allowed Francis to know, like, this is a conversation she's going to talk to me about. So Francis would start, as she got older, start to ask questions about, like, what is a sister? And, you know, where is Dorothy? And so through those conversations, we just are trying to be really truthful and very honest with her about, like, what is death? What does it mean? And in, in very like kid-friendly language, right? You know, like Dorothy is dead. That means that she's not breathing and her body isn't here. But, you know, she's, even though she's dead, even though she's gone, she's still our sister. She's still our daughter. We still love her. We will always love her. And it's been really awesome and slightly I, I, terrifying, not the right word, but like, oh. I, it's just really I don't know, a little frightening to watch someone be so open because kids are like, they just naturally are going to, they're just going to say all the things without. They're inquisitive. 
they're just inquisitive and there's like, there's no inhibitions and they don't know that it's not okay, you know, not okay to talk about this. So, um, so she's very matter of fact about it and she's very sweet about her, about Dorothy. And she talks about her, I mean, almost every day. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, she talks about her almost every day. Just, you know, if she hears somebody mention a sister, she's like, my sister's Dorothy and I miss her. And I'm like, yep. And I miss her too. And just very validating in our language and acknowledging. And also like just keeping it very simple. Like it's very matter of fact, like it's just what our family looks like we're lucky to have like a daycare provider who's really supportive of that and knows that that's how we talk about Dorothy and is really wonderful about including Dorothy. I don't know, in like conversations or Dorothy's birthday was in February. Francis made a card for Dorothy at daycare for her birthday. And that was like kind of encouraged by her daycare provider. And so I think we've modeled for others not to be afraid to talk about this with her. And we've let Frances take the lead. And she, you know, sometimes it it can be hard though. And that's something I tell like other lost parents, you have to be prepared, just like with anyone who's grieving, to kind of go with them when they're there, right? And like there's times when she wants to talk about Dorothy and I don't necessarily want to talk about it because it hurts and it's, it's really painful. And I, you know, so I have one of the things we have to model, or I feel like we have to model for her is I, I miss Dorothy too. And I know you want to talk about her. It's making me really sad right now. Like, could we, you know, could we, you know, talk about her a little bit later when it won't make me like, I won't be so upset. And she does, she does very sweet things. Like she, um, I don't know if we gave it to her, if it came from a book. I don't know where it came from, but in her in her mindset, Dorothy lives in the stars. That's what, how she Aww. talks about her. Um, we're not a religious family, so like heaven's not something we just we've ever really talked about. But she's decided Dorothy lives in the stars, and so she'll blow kisses to the ceiling at night when I tuck her in. And luckily it's dark, so I can cry. (laughs) You know, because it's really, it's it's sweet, but it's also, it's heartbreaking, you know, because we, um, we are not going to have any more, we do not plan on having any more children. And so um, it is, it is heartbreaking to think that, you know, the only relationship she has with a sister is with a sister who's not here. Yeah. You've really had me crying about five times. (laughs) (laughs) So we're not alone. But um, I think, think, you know, with the way that you've brought Frances up to talk about her sister is such a a lovely thing, especially because not only for her, but when she goes to daycare and she goes to school, imagine how many people she's going to help by being able to talk about that. It's This is something that little kids don't know how to talk about, but she does. Yeah. And I think it's helped me a lot too in raising a kid who's like a griever. I've had kids, students of my own in the past few years who parents have passed away or or have a loss, like a grandmother, grandfather passing away. And I feel like it helps me be so much more equipped to support them and support their families. And I've learned a lot from their families, like the families who are really open about talking about their grief. I feel like that 
you know, again, it like we can all help each other figure this out and, and see what works for our families. And, and it also shows you like, you know, I'm not being morbid. I'm not being like strange for, for talking about this. I'm not damaging my child, which I think is, you know, a belief that, that I've been talked, you know, people have kind of confronted me about, like, they feel like I, I need to focus just on Francis and really just kind of let Dorothy be. But I, I don't, Dorothy's your daughter though. And yeah, and she's Francis's <laughs> sister. And, and, and there is a, you know, chance that when Francis grows up, she might experience loss herself. And like, think of how different that experience, or like, think of, I, I just like to imagine that she knows she has a, a parent and a support system that is going to let her talk about that and grieve that. And I, I think that's really yeah. a really powerful thing. It's so important. And she's going to grow up in a world where she feels that she can share openly and honestly. So I think you've done an amazing job. Thank um, you. It's been a very emotional conversation. And thank you so much for being open and honest. Oh, yeah. I, I appreciate you creating the space for it. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I know we've been talking for a while now and I don't want to keep you any longer, but is there anything else that you'd like to say or leave my listeners with? Yeah, I mean... I, I mean, we covered a lot today. I mean, there's always, <laughs> there's always more to talk about, but but I, I think one thing I do want to say is we talked a lot about, you know, how sharing your story opens opens up space for others. But I also need to, I am trying to remind myself and remind the people, you know, in my audience that you also get to, you get to decide who you share your story with. And it is completely okay if you want to keep your experiences more private. And I think while I believe for, for me, sharing my story has been incredibly healing and really critical to my healing, I have learned from others that that is not for everybody. And so I think it's that, that thing we all know about grief is that you have to grieve in your own way. And so I want to give people permission if they feel like they're the only one they want to share their story with right now, if they want to keep it to themselves, that's that's also a really empowering thing, as long as it's your choice, right? Like if you are making that choice, I don't want people to feel silenced, but it is okay for you to be silent about your experience and just kind of, you know, I'll have people reach out to me and say like, I don't want to share my story with others, but I just want you to know I watch I kind of like lurk on your page and I watch <laughs> and I listen. And I think that's great. That's totally that, yeah. that's totally a way to to go about this. And and the other thing too is like and I have to remind myself of this and I've had to remind myself of this especially over like the last 2 years is you get to change your mind about how you're grieving. You know, you can your grief is not you know, I, I almost think of it as like some people, it almost seems like you kind of have like a grieving style. Like, I feel like I'm very, like, I'm very much an open, honest, like put it all out there griever. And it's also okay if I decide at some point that I'm, I don't want to be that person anymore. And I want to become yeah. like a more private person. So it's a lot about giving yourself permission to, to evolve and, and change just in the way that grief does. And, yeah. and you get to, you get to change with that too. I completely 
can relate to that because when my mum died, I wasn't living with her at the time. And so I, I didn't really have that relationship for the next couple of years. I didn't talk about her. I went to university. I didn't talk about my mum at all. I had best friends that didn't, I've never even said the words to that my mum had died. They'd obviously worked it out because I always talked about my dad or like everybody else apart from my mum. And now I'm the complete opposite. I'm doing a podcast. Anyone can listen to my story at all. But who knows? Some days maybe I don't want to talk about my mum. Like what you're saying is so true. We get to choose. It's okay if we don't ever want to talk about it. And it's okay if we do want to tell the world, like we all take the right path that's best for us. Yeah. And I think that is something that's important for people who are listening to our stories to understand, because I think people might mistake you and I as because we're here talking about this right now and we're being so open as being like more in our grief than another person who is kind of just going about life and not talking about it. But that's not the case. Like, you know, grief looks all kinds of ways and people have all different kinds of ways of holding grief and you don't have to you don't have to put yourself out there to get support you don't have to put your you don't have to be really you don't have to earn your support from people and i think that's something that those who are supporting the people who grieve need to hear like and and that's another thing. Like I feel like if I have to say one more thing, it would be <laughs> that you have to circle back and check on your people. Like it's I think that that is a big theme in the you know loss parent community, the bereaved parent community of pregnancy and infant losses. A lot of people check in on us. Well, more people check in on us in that first year, and then after that first year, it seems like people just are like, okay check I did my job you know they made it through the first year and I was there and now it's the people and again it's the same for me it's the same people who came to my couch in those first few weeks and sat with me and cried with me and just let me be those are the people who check back in and they don't just check in on I don't know they don't just check in on like the hard days like the the anniversaries and things like uh, one of my symbols for Dorothy is like hearts like I see hearts in places and she I I cannot tell you how much it means to me to get like a text or like an instant message on Instagram from like like you were saying like a person who I went to high school with and haven't seen in forever and they're like I found this heart rock when I was on the beach and I thought of Dorothy and I'm like Oh my God, that's like, I want to talk to you. Like, I don't even, like, I don't even know what you're doing in your life. And like somewhere you heard my story and you remembered this and like that's, that stuff just means the world to people. And I just, I want others to know, like, it seems so small and it matters so much. Oh God, no, I have tears in my eyes again. Thank you so much. I'm here for. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. I think you're going to help so many people. Thank you so much for having me. This was just really wonderful. Thank you again for creating this space for people. It's so so important. Thank you so much for listening to the Not So Linear podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review across Apple, Spotify or Google podcasts. Thank you.